from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Our Father, we thank you for the reading of this, your word, the word of the living God. You have given us the record and, and the truth of the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would bless this time together this morning in worship. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Wow. Thank you so much, uh, boys and girls and adults who uh, put together the music here for us this morning. That, that was such a blessing. And uh, that, that song, uh, both songs were just... Uh, very, very incredible. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Matthias and Sharon wrote and composed that last song themselves. And so uh, thank you for that. It was a great blessing. Good to see all of you here this morning. I decided that uh, I would go to Luke chapter 2 for this week and next week uh, to emphasize the uh, birth of the Lord. And so... We take our subject matter from, from there this morning. <clears throat> Certainly the birth of Jesus Christ is the greatest birth in all of history. Bishop, Bishop J.C. Ryle writes, Every birth of a child is a marvelous event. It brings into being a soul that will never die. But never, but never since the world began was a birth so marvelous as the birth of Christ. In itself, it is a miracle. And to that, I think we could all agree. W.H. Griffith Thomas, the Bible commentator of the past, writes, Every cradle holds the mystery of life, this one more than all others. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What was that mystery? That God was manifested in the flesh. <clears throat> the birth of our Lord was the beginning of the hope and consolation of Israel. God had promised all the way back from Genesis 3, that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people. Indeed, he did that through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The birth of Jesus Christ is one of the foundation stones of the Christian faith. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He writes again in 2 John, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. As we examine the scriptures related to the birth of Christ, we so frequently speak of them every year it becomes the same the same thing as we it seemed like we have heard the year before but what is what is the world focus on with regard to this time of year well i'll tell you they focus on the story of christmas and the story of christmas is fine it's fine to everyone in fact i found out just this past week that in the Arab Emirates, Emirates, how do you say it? United Arab Emirates. They put up a Christmas tree in a hotel, in a prominent hotel in that country. I believe it's in Dubai. And that Christmas tree was 42 feet tall and cost $11 million. It was decorated with gold and silver with Rolex watches and with uh, diamonds and you, you name it. And that's what the world sees as Christmas. Now you can throw the story of Christ in on that and the babe born in Bethlehem and all that surrounds it and people are just fine with that. But if you throw the theology of Christmas into it, that's when they began to choke. Because they cannot stand the fact and will not acknowledge the fact that the babe that was born in Bethlehem was God in the flesh. He is the only true and living God in the flesh. And that's where the world chokes. We find in this passage this morning that there was a decree sent out by Caesar Augustus. This passage is one that is very well known, read almost, uh, read in many homes even that do not know Christ. Uh, They read this passage because it fits the narrative. But it is a passage that is freshly filled with wisdom and power and majesty and the sovereignty of God. The decree that went out, we find in verses 1 and 2, were sent out by Caesar Augustus. The word itself, decree, comes from a word that sometimes is used in, in theology. It's called, it is the, the Greek word dogma. And we use it in English. We talk about things being dogmatic, things that are unmovable, things that, that are not negotiable as being dogmatic. 
And it's a, it's a really good word because it is an opinion that is expressed with authority, an opinion that, is an, uh, a, that has uh, ordinance behind it. It is a formal announcement or proclamation from above us. It can come from politicians. It can come from kings. In this case, it came from the emperor of Rome during a time when the Roman, when the Roman Empire ruled the world. In fact, the same word is used in Acts chapter 16 and verse 4 when the decision of the elders came out and they said, it says, as they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observant the decisions that were reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So these people went out. They were preaching. These, these Jews, the Jews were the first missionaries. They went out and they were preaching the gospel. And they were delivering to the Gentiles and to the people that they went to the decisions. That is the word. The dogmas of the apostles in Jerusalem. It's used in Acts chapter 17 where uh, Paul and Silas were acting in opposition to the decrees of Caesar. Here's what they said. And Jason has received them. You remember they went into a man's house by the name of Jason. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. This word's used over and over. And in this case, it's used to fulfill the prophecy that God had made about his son being born in Bethlehem. God's providence moved the heart of the most powerful man on earth at that time to bring about his decree. It is what God does in the affairs of men. Caesar's edict in verse 1, then, is seen to serve God's plan of salvation in bringing about the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. So the decrees of men are always used to serve God's plan. Who is this man that made the decree? Well, it tells us that it was Caesar Augustus. Now, we, we know from history who Caesar was, but I think it, it helps us if we know some of the historical context that, is surra that surrounds the birth of Jesus Christ, gives us sort of a picture of how these things came to pass. Caesar Augustus <clears throat> was the Roman emperor during the time... Uh, that uh, Christ was born. Augustus was his title. It was not part of his name. Uh, he was declared emperor by the Roman Senate in 29 B.C. Under Augustus, the Roman Empire extended itself further than it did ever had done ever before. Its borders were from the British Isles. Uh, on the northwest, uh, 
to the area of the Tigris River on the east. Caesar Augustus ruled much of what was known then as civilization. In fact, verse 1 says that it was all the world. At this time, the Roman, the Roman government had conquered that world and extended the Roman peace throughout the world. It was called the Pax Romana. Caesar Augustus himself was a proud and arrogant person. And this is where the word august comes from. We use the word august to think about something that is, is grand, that is lifted up, that, is, that we can put pride in. Caesar Augustus himself was a proud and arrogant man. That's where we get this word august. As a matter of fact, uh, all of the months of our calendar are named either after emperors or after Greek gods. And the month of August was named after Caesar Augustus. <clears throat> it says that he sent out a decree that all the world should be registered. And that this was the first registration that decree sent out an order to take a census. Now, we've all, if any of us of any age, have been involved in censuses. Uh, I think there have been uh, three in my lifetime that I can count. Um, but this is what he did. He wanted to know how many people were in the kingdom or the empire of Rome. And at that time, that extended to the whole world. Now, there were people outside of the Roman Empire, but the world that he's talking about here is the empire itself. And the purpose for the census was so that they could levy taxes on the people. In fact, the King James Version uses the word taxes so that all the world should be taxed. It was to bring about public records or transcripts of public records for the levying of taxes. Now the words all the world in verse, uh, in verse 1 is not the normal word for world. It's the normal word for world is the word cosmos, which, which extends all of the world, the globe, uh, itself, the, the earth itself. It's used in many different ways, but the word cosmos is not used here. There's another word that's used here, and it means the inhabited earth, that portion of the earth that has people in it. The Roman Empire, with all of its subjects, is what he's talking about. And with such a large area of census, a great multitude of people would be affected by this decree because the decree said they had to go to their own city to be registered, <clears throat> no matter where they were in the world. And so, in Luke's account, not only shows the effect on two people, but on the world itself. However, 
the world itself with all of its subjects is not the subject of this passage. This decree that moved millions of people from one place to another and from one city to another has to do with two people, Joseph and Mary, and that which would come about with them. As far as the world goes, these two people at that time were in obscurity, virtually unknown. And the world's news media would not have noticed them. They would have simply been movement in the crowd of people that were traveling to their birthplaces. But God had a plan to carry out, and God often makes things move in the world, things that we pay little or no attention to, to fulfill His purpose and His plan. This certainly was one of them. The period, it says, in verse 2, was while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke periodically dates events in his gospel account with various rulers that took place so that the accuracy of dates could be, could be measured. For example, in, in Luke 1 verse 5, he talks about Herod. And in chapter 3 verse 1, he talks about Tiberius. Now, it's easy to put dates on those because a lot of secular records were written that bear those names. And so he says here, that he, Luke goes to great pains to make sure that the exact dates of these events were recorded. Now, in Acts chapter 5, uh, if you'd like to look at Acts 5 with me, please. We're going to be going to some other passages here in a moment. Now, what you notice in Acts chapter 5, at verse uh, 37, this is when the apostles were arrested. They were brought before the council. And uh, Gamaliel, the, the teacher, the rabbi, the teacher that taught uh, the apostle Paul when he was young, speaks out. And uh, he's, he's saying to them, if God is in, in this, you can't change anything anyway. And then he goes to verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. Oh, there's a problem, isn't it? Because this is ten years after, this is ten years after the first census. That's why Luke says, that when Caesar Augustus sent out the decree, it was the first census. In Acts 5, it was the second census. Some people rose up and drew away people after him, and they perished, and it was, they were scattered. Why is, why is that important? Because criti critics of the Scripture would say, you see, this is, this is the census that Luke talks about. But it wasn't. And Quirinius was governor of the first census, but he was also governor of the second census. 
And there was some time lapse in between when he wasn't the governor. And so the census mentioned in Acts 5 was conducted by Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria, but it took place 10 years after the first census. And so the problem of time or dates is solved with regard to those records when Quirinius was governor before and after the birth of Christ. MacArthur writes in his study Bible in this Luke, in a note there on Luke chapter 2, indeed archaeology has vindicated Luke, a fragment of stone uh, discovered at, at Tivoli near Rome in 1764, contained an inscription in honor of a Roman official who it states was twice governor of Syria. <clears throat> so he was... He was governor twice, and thereby the dates are set. So Caesar Augustus made the decree to take the census in 8 B.C., but it wasn't carried out in Palestine until four years later, placing the birth of Christ no later than 4 B.C. Now that's kind of... Um, all this information is kind of technical, but if you'll bear with me, I'm getting to the good part of this here in a moment. It says in verse 1, and it came to pass in those days. And there's a great amount of sovereignty in those words. Uh, we must constantly remind ourselves that the God of heaven has a plan and a purpose which he is enacting as time goes by, he has a plan for everything. Nothing happens before or after he has planned it to happen. It is perfectly on time, every time. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them that were under the law. That's everybody. That's all of us. We were all condemned under the law of God. We had all broken the law of God. But when the time was right, God sent his son. Not only was Quirinius governor of Syria, but Herod, a, dis a, a descendant of Esau, was king of Judea. Now let me show you something that is really beautiful here. I have to have you turn back to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. <clears throat> Genesis 49. Notice... This is uh, chapter 49 deals with the death, the death of Jacob when he, uh, when he was brought to Egypt. He called all his sons together to, to give them his final blessing. And in, he goes down through each son and he calls each one of them out by name. And when we get to chapter, when we get to verse 10... Notice what it says. 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What does he mean by that? He means that the line of kings, the rule of Israel, will come from Judah, who was one of his sons. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, let me read it from the NASB. Some of you may have the NASB. Listen to what it says. The, cha- the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, sh- until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He uses the word Shiloh. Until Shiloh comes. Well, who is Shiloh? Shiloh is another name for the Messiah. So if you, if you look at the, what's happening to Israel during the time of the birth of Christ, just before that, you find this, that Judah was no longer ruled by one of its own princes, but Judah was rather ruled by, by um, Herod, a descendant of Esau. Also, the promised land was no longer in the hands of Israel. It was in the hands of a Gentile power, Rome. The prince or the ruler appointed by God he was empowered by Rome that would be Caesar the temple was no longer cared for by the prince of the people by the prince of God it was under the authority of a usurper and the priests of God were no longer ministers of God They had become servants of the secular world. So when this prophecy that Jacob makes in chapter 49, verse 10 of Genesis, he is saying that what, what can clearly be seen is how dramatically this prophecy will be fulfilled, that the scepter, the ruler, most definitely departed from Judah, but now it was time for Shiloh to return, to come, and he did come. He came in a cave where animals were kept in Bethlehem. God had predestined his coming in the counsel of his own Will God counseled with himself for Shiloh to come. God had already decreed this, that these events would take place by the prophet Micah. Very familiar, 5-2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you, too, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me. Listen, for me, God says, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth was from old, 
Genesis 49, verse 10. From ancient days. So God moved on a pagan ruler to make a decree that would coincide with his own will promised 742 years before it happened, but determined from the foundation of the world. It came to pass. Sovereign words. Now notice what it caused. It caused people to be registered. They went, verse 3, all went to be registered, everyone to his own town. So the decree required people to go to their own native city or town to be registered. Which was, would have been a great imposition for most of the world at that time. For we, they did not have automobiles or trains or airplanes. They simply had to walk or ride animals or be in a cart or a, or a, a wagon of some sort to get there. <clears throat> if that had been today and that were placed upon us, I would have to travel back to North Carolina to Winston-Salem and be registered there because that's where I'm from. In case you couldn't tell it. What this does is it shows the great links that God will go to in order to keep the promises of His Word. God set the whole world in motion. Millions of people going to their own cities to be enrolled for taxation. So God will move anything He has to. He will move empires. He will destroy empires in order to keep His promises and make sure they are fulfilled, as He said. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word that goes from my mouth, it shall not return empty. But it will accomplish the purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God makes decrees, they always come to pass as He has made them. I want you to notice the couple. <clears throat> this is probably the best part of this whole story. Because the devil has tried, Satan has tried to intervene in the decrees of God and thwart God's decrees from the very beginning. He did it in the garden when he tempted Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit. 
He did it when he, when he brought Cain up and to kill his brother Abel. But God gave a substitute in Seth. And from the line of Seth, all the way down to Christ, God's plan was fulfilled over and over again. What we see in the, fo- in the focus of the decree of Caesar, as far as God was concerned, was that Augustus, Caesar Augustus may have thought that he was the main character in history at that time. And probably most of the world would have thought that. But he wasn't the main character. The main character in the world at that time was... Joseph and Mary. And the Christ child who was the main actors in all of this drama. I want you to notice five things in the time that we have left. Five things that um, took place here in verses 4 and 5. First of all, I want you to notice the compliance of Joseph and Mary. Joseph was from Bethlehem. And he had to go back to Bethlehem. He was living in Nazareth. And so he had to come from Nazareth, which was in Galilee, back into Judea. And the Jews came during this time to to regard the census as a great impact imposition and encroachment upon their nation. And they were in opposition to it. In fact, the second census, as we read in Acts chapter 5, brought up a great rebellion among the Jews and many of them rebelled violently against the next Roman census. But Joseph and Mary, Joseph was a righteous man and so was Mary a righteous woman. And Joseph, being a a law-abiding person, did exactly what he should have done. He packed up his betrothed, and they went to Bethlehem. The civil authorities had given orders based under their laws, which, was, which came from the Roman Senate and from Caesar, and they obeyed them. Other than civil laws, civil laws are to be obeyed unless those laws violate God's law. Christians ought to be the Christians ought to be the most law-abiding people on earth. Until the government makes laws that violate God's laws, and then we are not obliged to follow them or to obey them. Even the disciples during during the time after uh, of the Book of Acts gathered before the the council said, "We must obey God rather than men." when they were told they could not preach in the name of Jesus any longer. 
In fact, Joseph and Mary are bound to obey the Roman laws, and those, those laws emphasize the ruin of Israel. G. Campbell Morgan writes, Joseph must bend the neck even though the royal blood of David courses through his veins. Joseph was from the line of David, the king. And so was Mary. God had warned Israel over and over about their sinful ways. But they continued on until God brought them into bondage of another nation. The royal heavenly power of Israel was made subject to an illegitimate power ruled by pagan kings. This happened over and over in Israel's history, as we all well know. How tragic and devastating is the work of sin. Let us remember that, that this truth, every time we are tempted to, go, to walk into sin and go our own ways, brings down the judgment of God. So Joseph and Mary went out of Nazareth into Bethlehem. Now the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 75 miles. Trying to, trying to figure what 75 miles from here is. Uh, but it, it's a long ways. It would be like walking to the cities and then turning around and walking back. So they had to make this long trip on foot, on dusty roads, difficult trails, in Mary's condition, very close to delivery. No doubt, Mary rode on a donkey, carried provisions with them for the trip. Furthermore, Bethlehem was some 2,300 feet above sea level, which meant that most of their journey... A lot of their journey was uphill, very strenuous. Now, verse 4 and 5 says that he was from the house and lineage of David. That is a problem. Let me show you why. You'll need to turn back to Jeremiah chapter 22. <clears throat> While you're turning there, I'll just tell you that both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. David was the king of Israel. So they both come from the royal line. However, there was a problem with Joseph's lineage. And we find it here in Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning at verse 24, if you would. Follow along. <clears throat> Now, God is speaking to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is speaking for, for the Lord when he says this in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, through Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Now, why is that important? This man named Coniah had disobeyed the Lord. And the Lord says, if you were a signet ring on my hand, I would tear it off. Verse 25, and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. 
into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. This is a severe judgment of God against Coniah, who was the son of the king Jehoiakim. Verse 27, but to the land to which they will long to return, which would be their homeland, Israel, into Judah, the the land that they would long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? These are rhetorical questions God is asking. The answer is yes. He is a broken pot. He is the ring to tear off the finger. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? Oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. And here it is. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God placed a curse on Coniah. And that curse was that he would be exiled to another land. And in that land he would die. And all of his children... Would of his children, none of them would ever sit on the throne of David. He would be childless. Now, not childless in the sense that he didn't have children. He had children. But childless in the sense that none of his children would sit as king in Israel. None of them. He would not... They would not sit on the throne of David and rule. This curse extended all the way down to Joseph, who came from Coniah's line. We find his name in the genealogy of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 12. Listen, listen to what it says. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, that's Coniah, Jeconiah, was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So how was Jesus to ever sit on the throne of David if he comes from this line? Well, let's let's look at verse. Let's look at the verse. Turn to Matthew one, so you can see it. Uh, let's see, Matthew one. Um, yes, verse sixteen. At uh, verse twelve and verse sixteen, that gives us the the people in the line. You have Jeconiah. When they were 
exiled to Babylon, you have Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. In verse 16, you have Jacob and you have Joseph, who was, Luke says, the husband of Mary. Now follow along. And Jacob, the father, literally, Jacob was the father. It's it's in the active voice. Jacob was. Active voice. Which represents the subject as the performer of the action. Jacob was the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. Of whom, of whom is a feminine Pronoun, singular, of whom Jesus was born. The feminine pro- pronoun points, it doesn't point back to, jo- to Joseph, it points back to Mary. Because Mary did not come from the line of Coniah. Yes, she came from David's line, but Coniah came through Solomon. Mary's line came through Nathan, Solomon's brother. And so, the subject of the verb was born is not Joseph, it's Mary. In fact, Matthew goes to great lengths to single out Joseph as the husband of Mary indicating his legal position, but he was not the father of Jesus. God was the father of Jesus. And Mary didn't come from Solomon's line. She came from Nathan's line. And thereby, the curse that was placed upon Coniah was bypassed in Mary. So Jesus has the right to sit on the throne of his father David and rule in Israel. Isn't that beautiful how God just makes these things come to pass as he decreed them and he bypasses all of the of the works of Satan to try to interrupt how God is bringing them to pass. Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. Luke gives Mary's lineage in chapter 3, ending with Adam. But in verse 31, links her with David, not through Solomon, but through Nathan, Solomon's brother. Luke 3, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, it says. But that was all supposed Because Joseph, though he raised Jesus, was not Jesus' true father. Because they went to Bethlehem to register with their ancestral heritage was verified and there was no reason at all that the Jews, for the Jews to reject Jesus based upon his birthright. But they did reject him. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. And even when Jesus himself was identified 
himself identified himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, the response was not a welcome one. Not a welcome recognition, but rather a crucifixion. But in, that was in God's plan too. That He would come into the world to die and to suffer as the sacrifice for my sin and yours. Jesus is identifying Himself in the Word of God as the Messiah. Who is He identifying Himself to you today? Is He your Savior? Is He your Lord? Have you repented of your sins and fallen in love with Him? Are you following Him? He is the virgin-born Christ, the Son of God, the one who was born in a stable or a cave where animals fed and sheltered because there was no room for them anywhere else. Now next week we're going to pick up on this same passage and carry on with the birth of Christ. But let's remember, you know, everything we see around this time of year is just so much hype of the world. Let's remember that what we have here is the birth of our Lord. He's our Lord, my Lord, yours. And let's make an emphasis on that as best we can in the midst of all the other things that go on. Father, we pray your blessing now on this time and we pray that you would bless this uh, information that you have given us in your word the background of the birth of your son, both from the line of the heritage, the lineage that comes from your King David, that one day Jesus Christ will be sitting on that throne and he will rule and reign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray and you're asking this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.